Welcome to Who is Jesus, a limited edition podcast by Central Western Church in St. Louis. Each week, we explore a different aspect of Jesus' life, identity, self-understanding, and purpose in the world. Our goal is to look beyond the hot takes to the historical sources themselves in order to see more clearly who Jesus is and why it matters for us. For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com. And now, please enjoy this week's episode of Who is Jesus? Mark chapter 14, verse 22 through 31. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, Yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same, the word of the Lord. So over the past several weeks, we've been looking at different aspects of Jesus' life, identity, self-understanding, and purpose in this world. But as we approach Easter, we want to spend some of the remaining weeks uh, looking more closely at Jesus' death on the cross. Um, This is a big question. It's one thing to ask who Jesus is. You'll get different answers. But it's another thing to ask, why did Jesus die? You won't just get different answers to that question, you'll get strong feelings. Not just from people who want to defend the traditional idea of Jesus' death as a sacrifice for sin, but also people who want to deconstruct that idea. So many people will say things like, look, Jesus never understood his death as a sacrifice for sin. That whole idea is a fabrication that comes from the Apostle Paul and later Christians imposing their theological agenda on Jesus. But Jesus himself never understood his death like that. That's a very common narrative. And there are many other answers to the question, why did Jesus die? Some people think, well, Jesus' death was a horrible accident. Or others will say that it was a protest against injustice. Or still other people might say that it was a stirring example of selfless love. There are all these different ideas. So how in the world do we sort through them and find an answer? Is it even possible? Or is the real answer lost to history? 
Like, you know, the only person that really knew was Jesus, and the, and the reason he died, died with him on the cross. And, and we'll never know the answer. Is that it? Well, what if we could ask Jesus himself? Like, what if Jesus walked in the room right now and we could have a Q&A with him? Hey, Jesus, could you tell us more about your understanding of your life and mission in this world? And especially, could you explain to us the significance of your death on the cross? What if we could ask Jesus? Well, we can, because this passage that we just read is Jesus himself explaining the significance of his death to us. Now, there are other places he does this, and we looked at one of them last week, but this is a big one. In this passage, Jesus is explaining the meaning of his death to us. So let's walk through it ourselves and see three things. Jesus shows us the centrality of his death. He shows us the meaning of his death, and he shows us the practice of his death. He shows us the centrality, the meaning, and the practice of his death. So first, let's look at the centrality of his death. Uh, This story is one of the most famous events in the life of Jesus. It's called the Last Supper. In a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested, tried, and publicly executed. So he takes this night to share one last meal with his dearest friends and followers. But what night does he choose to do this? Passover. Passover is part of the Exodus story, which is the story of how God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. This is the defining event in the history of Israel and their whole identity as a people. You know how um, superhero movies will sometimes have one whole movie that is just the backstory of one certain character? It's called an origin story. We love origin stories because origin stories, they don't just tell us who somebody is. They show us how they became that person. We, we are fascinated by origin stories because an origin story is the origin of someone's identity. Exodus is Israel's origin story. It's the story of how God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And Passover is a meal that God commanded them to eat on the night he brought them out of slavery and a meal that God commanded them to eat every year hence as a way of rooting their identity more deeply in what God had done for them. So Passover is a dramatic retelling of the story of how God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And in in Passover, there's always somebody whose job it is to preside over the meal. It's like they're the storyteller. Their job is to explain the significance of everything that's happening in the meal. So for instance, Passover begins with this question. Uh, Usually the youngest child there will ask, why is this night different from all other nights? And then the storyteller goes into the story. And everything that happens has significance. The storyteller's job is to explain the significance of everything that happens. So for instance, they'll take bread and they'll say, this is the bread of our affliction. They're explaining its significance. Now, if we go back to our story, here's Jesus, it's Passover, and he's the storyteller. He's presiding over the meal. It says that Jesus took bread broke it, but then Jesus shocks everyone because instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction, Jesus says, this is my body. What in the world is going on? The next thing Jesus does is it says that he he took a cup and he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, 
This language is explicitly sacrificial language, and we'll talk more about that in just a bit. But for now, do you realize what Jesus is doing? He's taking the Passover meal, which they've been celebrating and observing for hundreds of years without change, without modification, a meal that is the defining event in their history and in their whole identity as a people. Jesus is taking this meal and completely redefining it to say, it's all about me. My, Passover, everything that happened in the Passover is pointing to me. It's, it's an echo, it's an adumbration, it's a foreshadowing of me because my death is the ultimate exodus and my death is the ultimate deliverance from slavery. What, what kind of person says something like this? And not just this, you know, if you've been with us throughout this series, um, we've mentioned this several times, that the story of Israel is not just the story of one little nation in one little corner of the world. The Bible consistently presents the story of Israel as the story of God's multi-ethnic, multicultural mission to bring rescue and renewal to the whole world. That's the biblical storyline. That's the story of Israel. And you realize now what Jesus is saying? He's saying, my death, my sacrificial death is the very center and climax of all history. I'm not just the storyteller here. I am the story. Now, very few people doubt that's what this means. What people do doubt is that Jesus ever said this in the first place. People will say, look, the Bible has been changed so many times. And this whole story is just, you know, that's a late invention of the church. It's just powerful religious leaders trying to consolidate their power base and, and marginalize any dissenting views of Jesus. That's the challenge. What do we say to that? Well, did you know that historical inquiry into the life of Jesus is one of the largest academic fields in the whole world? For instance, there are um, hundreds, if not thousands of books that uh, are all focused on the, quote, historical Jesus. Now, here's the thing. About 10% of these books are written by Christians who are advocating for the Christian faith. Another 10% are written by people who are skeptical about the Christian faith. Um, each of these groups has a dog in the fight, so to speak. But the remaining 80% of books written about the historical Jesus are written by professional historians who don't really have any interest in the theological claims about Jesus. Their job as historians is simply to ask, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? What can we know about Jesus with reasonable confidence? That's their job. So historians all over the world in all the top academic institutions, in order to do this, it's just like it's a science, really. They have a, a set of very precise, measurable, agreed-upon criteria by which they evaluate the reliability of whether or not a, a historical event actually happened. Now hang with me for just a second, okay? I promise there's a payoff here. One of the criteria that historians use is something called the criterion of multiple attestation, which sounds really fancy and confusing, but here's what this means. It's actually very simple. Um, imagine you are an investigative reporter, and one day at the office you get a tip, a call that comes in that says a tiger escaped from the zoo and was last seen driving down Main Street in a Maserati which is weirdly specific and also completely outrageous and unbelievable. Normally, you would ignore something like that, but 
It's a slow day at the office. So you go out to investigate and immediately you meet an eyewitness who attests to having seen this tiger driving a Maserati down Main Street. Now, here's the question. Do you print the story? Not on your life. That it's just one witness, and they're probably lying. You would never print something like that. But then, imagine that you meet another eyewitness, completely separate from this first person. They haven't talked. They haven't coordinated their stories. And this person attests to the same thing. They say, yeah, I saw it too. That's a lot stronger. Friends, whenever a, historic, a, a, a historian has two completely independent historical sources, both attesting to the same historical event, the chances of the likelihood of that event increase exponentially. In the case of Jesus eating a Passover meal with his disciples on the night before he was crucified, in which he says, this is my blood of the covenant, we have not just one, not even two, but three independent historical sources all attesting to the same thing. Now here's the payoff. Historians are extremely, and I mean extremely cautious about what they will say that we can know about Jesus. There's maybe about a dozen things that they will say this almost certainly happened. This is one of them. That means that historically speaking, not from a faith perspective, not from a theological perspective, not someone's agenda, but historically, we can have a high degree of confidence that Jesus understood his death as a substitutionary sacrifice and as the center and climax of all history. That is a lot more outrageous than a tiger driving a Maserati. And you may not even like it, but if you really want to know who Jesus is and what he understood about his death, we have to grapple with this. And that leads to our next point. Jesus has just shown us the centrality of his death, but next he shows us the meaning of his death. Remember, Jesus just said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, I just told you that this is explicitly sacrificial language. Let me explain why. Do you know why Passover is called Passover? I didn't for 30 years. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up reading the Bible. The first time I read the story was 30 years old. Um, I never understood this. Why is Passover called Passover? I just had heard the word. Well, here's why. In the book of Exodus, God tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to rescue my people out of slavery in Egypt. So I want you to go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and tell him, thus says the Lord, let my people go. But I'm telling you right now, Moses, he's not going to do it. The only way Pharaoh will let them go is if I bring judgment down on Egypt. And that's exactly what happens. On the night of Passover, God sends, it's called an angel of destruction. He sends this angel of destruction throughout the land of Egypt, bringing judgment down on the oppressors, down on, on the evil and on the injustice. Now, we've talked about this a couple of times throughout the series already, this, this whole idea of judgment. But let's just do a really quick little recap. On the one hand, as modern people, we really struggle with this idea of a God who judges but on the other hand, as modern people, we demand um, justice on evil and wrongdoing in the world. In fact, the only thing that makes us more outraged than evil itself is to see evil go unpunished. But here's the thing, and the real challenge, as human beings, 
We have a default tendency to divide the world into the good people and the bad people. And of course, we put ourselves in the good category. And at one level, we all know that that's way too simplistic. We just can't help ourselves. It's almost impossible for us to resist the urge to look at different people groups out there, different institutions or demographic groups or political parties or different groups of people, and not just to say what these people are doing is bad. Our instinct is to say, no, these people are bad and we're the good ones. So when we look at the Passover story, we say, aha, here's the perfect example. Here's Egypt, they're the oppressors, they're the bad people, but here's Israel. They're the oppressed, they're the good ones. But friends, this is exactly where the Passover story gets right up in our face and messes with us. Because on on the Passover night, when God brings his judgment down on Israel, what, what does God say to Israel? Does he say, all right now, Israel, you just stand over here and watch while I bring judgment down on these wicked Egyptians? Is that what he says? No. God says, Israel, you need to take a lamb, slaughter it, and then smear its blood over the doorpost of your house. And when my judgment comes down, I will see the blood and my judgment will pass over you. That's why it's called Passover. Friends, do you realize what this means? I mean, this is really messing with our default tendency. The only reason that Israel could be saved was if they took shelter under the blood of a lamb because they were all liable to judgment. The, the only, they needed a substitute to take the judgment that they deserved. Are you starting to see why this story is so unsettling for us? It's messing with our default tendency. It's saying that we're all liable to judgment because we all have the capacity for evil in our lives. We all have um, the same capacity for evil in our lives. You know, when God withholds judgment on Egypt because they took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, God passes over the sin and evil in their lives. But when we divide the world into the good people and the bad people and put ourselves in the good category, you know what we're doing? We're passing over ourselves. There is nothing more spiritually dangerous than that because by and large we are all blind, deeply blind to our own capacity for evil. So look at Peter in this story. Towards the end of the meal, um, or right after the meal that is, Jesus tells all the disciples, hey, you're all going to fall away, you're all going to betray me. And Peter, so cocksure, you know, he like comes right back at Jesus. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Peter's so sure about himself. Jesus basically uh, says to Peter, Peter, you don't even know your own heart. You're completely blind to your own capacity for evil because, Peter, before this night is out, you yourself will disown me three times. And he did. And just to show the, the utter depth of Peter's own spiritual blindness, Peter comes right back at Jesus and it says that he insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. You know what Peter's doing? He's passing over himself. Friends, we're all liable to judgment. That's why Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. I am the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And unless you take shelter under my blood, there's no other way for God's judgment to pass over you. Do you realize what this means? Passover begins with the question, why is this night different 
from all other nights. But the gospel begins with the question, why is this Savior different from all other Saviors? That's a radical difference. The gospel is radically different from every other view of salvation. Um, Here's why this is true. If you notice at the end of the passage, you know, Peter is so sure. He makes this vow. He really, Peter makes an oath. He says, I will never disown you, Lord Jesus. That's an oath. And Peter has this default notion in which he believes he's his own savior, that salvation is up to his own strength. And, and it's all based on the strength of his commitment to Jesus. That is the default mode of, of all of our human hearts. I mean, wherever you're at spiritually, uh, we're all basically looking for some kind of salvation in this world. For some of us, it might mean, oh, like something like nirvana or enlightenment or divine consciousness. Even if you're somebody who's more secular, it might mean something like being a good person and making the world a better place. Um, But for all of us, we're we're all trying to, to be our own savior because we all think that it's ultimately up to us and our strength. You have to obey the rules. You have to be a good person. You have to be devoted and committed. You have to do the right thing. Here are these spiritual disciplines you must practice. It's all up to us and our strength. But this is where the gospel is radically unique. Why is this salvation different from every other salvation? You notice during the meal, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, I will not, you know what that is? Jesus is making an oath. In fact, grammatically, it's very similar to the oath that Peter tried to make. I mean, to paraphrase, it's basically like Peter is saying, Jesus, no way will I ever fail you. But Jesus is saying, Peter, no way will I ever fail you. Because hours later, just a few hours later, Peter was weeping bitterly because he had just failed his oath, but Jesus was hanging on a cross in order to fulfill his oath. The cross was everything the Passover story was pointing to. Because on the cross, God's judgment came down on Jesus, the true lamb, so that God's judgment could pass over us. Friends, the reason this salvation is different from every other salvation is because it's the only salvation that doesn't depend on you and your strength. It depends on Jesus and his strength. You are not saved by the strength of your commitment to Jesus. You are saved, we are saved, by the strength of his commitment to us. That's the gospel. That's the meaning of his death. And that leads to the last thing we see this morning. Jesus shows us the centrality of his death. Second, he just shows us the meaning of his death. But last, Jesus shows us the practice of his death. What what does all of this mean for our lives, practically speaking? The implications really are endless, but I want to just focus on three things that are prominent in this story. Three things, especially that are happening when we eat this meal, as Jesus commanded us to eat this meal. Jesus' death on the cross gives us three things. It gives us a new identity, a new community, and a new hope. And we're going to just walk through each of these really briefly. But first, Jesus' death gives us a new identity. Notice during this meal, uh, Jesus, it says that, um, that he took a cup gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Now, the cup is Jesus' death for them. It says they all drank from it. That means that they all get to benefit or share in the benefits of of the cup that Jesus gave them to drink. But then right after the meal, Jesus says, you will all fall away. 
Now, notice what's going on here. It says they all drank, and then they all fell away. That little word, word all, ties both of these things together. That, that means that, that these two things are related. And notice the order in which these things happen. This is really important. First, Jesus gives them the cup. He said, this is my cup. This is my death. This is my life that's given for you. This is my love for you. He gives it to them. They only betray Jesus after they've given, um, drank from the cup. But, but their betrayal of Jesus doesn't invalidate the benefits of the cup because Jesus already knew all of that when he gave them the cup in the first place. He knew, you're going to betray me, you're going to fall away, but none of that matters. My cup, my love for you invalidates all of your betrayal because nothing you can do can invalidate my love for you. That's what Jesus is doing here. In fact, you know, we think about our own identity, our identity in this world. It's always up and down based on our performance, isn't it? So like if you do well in this world and you feel good about yourself and also a little prideful and superior to others, and it's okay, we can go ahead and admit that. But if you do um, poorly, if you fail, if you screw up, then we feel horrible about ourselves. We start condemning ourselves because our identity in this world is always up and down on the basis of our own performance. But the gospel says, no, now your identity is, is not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus' performance for you on the cross. That means that even when you screw up, even when you fail, your belovedness in God is infinitely bigger than your betrayal of God. Friends, that is a rock-solid identity because it's not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus' performance. So on the one hand, that's going to make you a deeply humble person because you know you're no better than anyone else. On the other hand, it's going to make you an incredibly secure person because you know that your belovedness, your worth, and your value as a person is not rooted in your performance. It's rooted in Jesus' performance for you on the cross. So just as when the Israelites would eat the Passover meal, it was a way of rooting their identity in something that God had done for them. When we eat this meal, it's a way of rooting our identity in what Jesus has done for us. In other words, the cross becomes your origin story. The, the death of Jesus gives us a whole new identity. But secondly, the death of Jesus gives us a new community. If you go back to the Exodus story, when God brings Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he leads them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God calls the Israelites into a covenant community with God. A covenant is a special relationship that's based on a set of promises. And it's the most intimate, binding, and sacred relationship possible. So, but how does um, God create this new covenant community with Israel? Well, in Exodus 24, um, Moses makes a sacrifice. He sacrifices some animals. And then he takes the blood of these animals and he throws it on the Israelites. And he says, behold, the blood of the covenant. The, the blood of the sacrifice creates a new community. It's a way of saying, you have peace with God. Now have peace with each other. Now, come back to our passage. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. He is directly quoting Exodus 24. And again, you realize what he's doing? He's saying everything that happened there is all about me. It's all pointing to me. My blood is the birth of a whole new covenant community. 
That means that Jesus' death doesn't just give us a new identity personally, it gives us a whole new community globally. That means that the gospel is the basis of a new unity that brings together people who out in the world would normally have nothing to do with one another. I mean, if you look at the 12 disciples, you know, one of the guys was named Simon the Zealot. That means he was a left-wing revolutionary who wanted to burn down the empire. But there was another guy named Matthew. You may have heard of of him. He was a tax collector. That means that he was a right-wing guy who was colluding with the empire. I mean, talk about ideological opposites. These are two guys who would never have showed up at the same Thanksgiving table together. And yet, the blood of Jesus unites them in a new covenant community that transcends politics, race, class, gender, or any of the other things that tend to divide us in this world. Did I mention that it transcends politics? Friends, that doesn't mean that um, the church doesn't have deep problems that we need to address. It does. And it also doesn't mean that the church shouldn't... um, that the church ignores all the problems in the world that cause all the divisions in the first place. In fact, it means the opposite. And that actually leads to the last implication for us this morning. The death of Jesus uh, gives us a new identity. It gives us a new community. But lastly, it gives us a new hope. Can I invite you to a little thought experiment? Imagine you're sitting in a dark room. It's completely dark. You can't see anything. You don't know what's happening. After you've been sitting there for a little while, how are you going to be feeling? What do you want to do? You want to get out of there. (laughs) There's a reason that solitary confinement is considered torture. The, The longer you're sitting in that dark room, the more anxious you're going to be, the more depressed and lonely you're going to be, and the more eager you're going to be to escape that room. In many ways, that's what our experience of this world is like. This world feels dark. From the pandemic, to climate change, to politics, to racial injustice, to economic collapse, to the mental health crisis, to the opioid crisis, to all the social division in our world. It's really hard to have hope for this world. And that's why for centuries, as long as history has been recorded, human beings have always longed to find some kind of escape from this world. You see this impulse everywhere. You see it in Eastern spirituality, which says this world is an illusion and the goal is to be liberated from it. You also see it in fundamentalist religion, um, where you have this doomsday apocalyptic vision of the world that says God is going to destroy the world and carry us away to heaven. You even see this impulse in secular visions of the world. You know, people like Stephen Hawking or Elon Musk who say, well, our only hope is to colonize other planets because this planet is doomed. Pretty much every vision of the world that's out there says our ultimate hope as human beings is to escape this world. Every vision except the Bible. Remember during the meal, we saw Jesus takes the cup and he says, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been with us throughout this sermon series, what is the kingdom of God? My goal, one of my goals um, for us is that one day we'll just be able to recite this together impromptu without uh, anything written. You just know it so well. But what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is, is 
God's multi-ethnic, multicultural mission to bring rescue and renewal to the whole world. God's vision is not to destroy this world, but to renew and restore this world. That is a radically different vision from anything else in this world. And it gives us an incentive, the deepest, greatest possible incentive and motivation not to ignore the problems of this world, but to devote ourselves ever more deeply to the healing of this world's biggest problems. And that doesn't mean that we can bring about ultimate healing for this world. We can't. Only God does that. But it does mean that our efforts in this world are like a foretaste and a promise. Kind of like when you go to the ice cream shop and you get a little sample of the ice cream. That sample is a foretaste and a promise of something good to come. And that something good, because you know something good is coming, it gives you hope. Friends, this is a radically different vision. The gospel gives you a hope that is completely different from anything else the world could ever offer you. Not escape from the pain of this world, but deep lasting healing for the pain of this world. Or we could think about it like this. You know how when you go to the movies, if you still go to the movies, um, what, what's happening before the movie starts? What's that? Well, before the trailers, what's ha- you're sitting in a dark room. You're just sitting there. If a space alien showed up, peeked inside the movie theater, they'd be like, what in the world are these people doing just sitting in this dark room? What's the difference between this dark room and that other dark room I invited you to imagine just a few minutes ago? What's the difference? Hope. Hope. You're sitting in this movie theater, you're sitting in a dark room, but you're not filled with anxiety and despair. You're filled with anticipation and excitement. Why? Because you know something good is coming, and that gives you hope. Friends, this meal, the body and blood of Jesus, the bread broken, the, the, the cup that's poured out, this meal is a foretaste and a sampler of something good that's coming. And when we eat this meal, it roots our identity in something new, in the death of Jesus. It creates a new unity for us, a new community for us. As we come together at a table, people who normally out in the world might have nothing to do with each other, we come together and gather around this table. And it sends us back out into the world with a new hope to to go out and devote ourselves to to bringing healing and renewal to this world, not because we can think that we're going to bring ultimate healing and renewal to this world, but because we know that as we do this, We as a community are a foretaste and a sampler of something good that's coming, God's ultimate healing and renewal of this world. Did you realize all of that is happening at this table? It's the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for you. Is this your experience? A new identity, a new community, a new hope? Is this what you're experiencing? And if not, would you like to experience it? It's all available here for you at this table in the death of Jesus. If you're willing, would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you this morning for your death on the cross. Lord, we've just looked at one little aspect of your death on the cross, Lord Jesus. We're going to look at others in the weeks to come. We praise you that your death and resurrection is so big we can't possibly um, comprehend it in one 30-minute sermon. But we do praise you, Lord, for showing us this much this morning that your death 
is a sacrifice for us on the cross that we can't pass over ourselves, but because of your death on the cross, the, the judgment of God passes over us and we are invited to experience a new identity, a new community, and a new hope in you. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning as we come to this table that you would help us to rest ever more um, deeply in that new identity, to enjoy ever more passionately the new community that we have, and to engage ever more faithfully the new hope that you have given us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who is Jesus? For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com.